0: Gospel of John in the ninth chapter. We've been several weeks out of the John series, but back in it this morning and to tonight, back in the life of King Saul. But John chapter number nine, I've enjoyed the good music. John chapter number nine. The Gospel of John in chapter nine in verse one, then as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world." When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation Sent. He went his way therefore and washed, and came seeing. There's only eight miracles in the Gospel of John, and John was very selective or very careful in how he selected the particular miracles to include in his gospel. He tells us the reason for that in that purpose statement that we looked at at the very beginning. It's at the very end of the book, John 20 and verse 30. And many other signs, signs, many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. The ones that I've uh, these are written that ye might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that believing ye might have life through his name. So John said that the miracles that I've included are signs. They're, they're like a signpost and it is pointing to something. It is pointing to the truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and it's for you to believe. Amen. So John emphasizes belief in this gospel. The Samaritan woman believed, the nobleman believed, but not all believed. So there is an emphasis in unbelief as well. But the only issue that John seems to be interested in is do you believe or do you not believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God? There are some who did not believe because they did not understand. Nicodemus would would be that. There are some who did not believe without a sign. They had to have a miracle. The nobleman in Capernaum, he he had to have a sign. But there were some who believed on a superficial level, the masses that were there at the feeding of the 5,000. But the greatest form of unbelief is the hard-hearted, truth-rejecting unbelief of the rabbis and the chief priests that the Lord encountered. And for several weeks in chapter seven and chapter eight, we saw the Lord Jesus in Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles and he faces off with these religious elites and we've gone back and forth. And really, no matter what Jesus said, no matter how much evidence he presented, no matter how many times Jesus answered their questions, they simply are not going to believe. They're not going to. So, so John John tells another miracle. And in this chapter, we are going to see again belief and unbelief side by side. In fact, here's what you see. There is a blind man that is made to see. There are seeing men that are made blind. There is a blind man who knows virtually nothing spiritually. But in the very end of the chapter, he's going to say, I believe that you are the son of God. There are religious men who have the Old Testament. They have all the evidence. They have all of the miracles. But they refuse to believe what is very plainly in front of their eyes. That again Jesus is the son of God. And when you read the back and forth in this chapter between the blind man and the Pharisees. It is very evident that the Pharisees ignorance is willful ignorance. They could have known. They should have known. But they refuse to know. So one man is blind and he wanted to see. Other men are seeing, but they chose to be blind. Now it's interesting to me that when you study a harmony of the Gospels, there are 35 named miracles in the Gospels together. Eight of those 35 miracles is the healing of a blind man. Jesus performed more miracles of giving sight to the blind than anything else that, that is told, that is recorded. And I wondered about that, why, why, why is that, was, was, was blindness just so prevalent in that day? Was, that, was it just that there were so many blind people? then? I don't know if that's true. But here's what, here's what I, I found interesting in the Old Testament, There are a number, of course, of of messianic passages that point to the coming of the Messiah. And when the Messiah comes, here's gonna be a sign, here's gonna be what he's gonna do. And there are a great number of messianic passages that says that when the Messiah comes, he is going to give sight to the blind. He is gonna open blinded eyes. For example, Isaiah 29, 18, you don't have to turn there. In that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. I said 35 and verse five, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Isaiah 42 and verse 7, to open the blinded eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. So over and over and over, the Old Testament says that the coming of the Messiah is going to be associated with the opening of blinded eyes. So that's why I find it interesting that in the Old Testament, there are a great number of miracles that take place. Elijah, Elisha, many miracles that take place. There is one miracle that you never read about in the Old Testament, and it is opening blinded eyes. Then when you get to the New Testament, the disciples are given the power. Matthew 10 to go out and they heal the, they heal the sick and they, 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 they cast out devils. They perform a lot of miracles. There is one miracle that none of the disciples do. It's opening blinded eyes. But here comes Jesus. And eight times more than anything else, he is opening blinded eyes. And here's the reason I point that out. Messiah's coming and giving sight to the blind is gonna be associated with Messiah. So so when you see somebody do something that you've never seen before, when you see something happen that has not happened in the Old Testament before, when you see somebody doing something that nobody else is able to do, that ought to clue you in of the coming of the Messiah. So here we have in John chapter nine, he is opening blinded eyes again. The Messiah has come, the prophecy is being fulfilled. Now this morning, we we can't cover the entire chapter. I've tried to break it up in two sections. And this morning I'm gonna deal just with the miracle. And then next week we'll deal with the aftermath of the miracle. And there are three truths in in the verses that I've read to you that I wanna present to you. Here's the first truth, and that is that there is a problem greater than blindness. There is a problem greater than blindness. look at verse number one. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. Now, if you back up to chapter eight and verse 59, then took they up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself, went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by so 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 you remember that jesus is being chased out of the temple he's being chased out of jerusalem and it says he passed by chapter 9 and verse 1 and as jesus passed by so it looks like to me that the two passages are connected and as jesus is leaving, he's escaping for his life. They have stones in their hand, they're wanting to stone him and he is slipping out. He stops and takes time to deal with this blind man. He's gonna stop as he's passing, get the scene, he's passing by and here's what I love. I love that even though our Lord was under the threat of his own life, he still stopped to give a blessing to this blind man. He was just passing by and somebody said he was just in a blessing kind of way that day. This blind man doesn't cry out. This blind man doesn't ask for healing. This blind man has been born blind and Jesus just on his way out under great duress stops and gives healing to this man. Now the Bible tells us that this man is born blind. So he has lived his entire life in darkness. Right. And I've often thought, I've often thought that blindness, blindness, would probably be harder to live with than maybe some paralysis, maybe even deafness. It's hard to imagine. I, I've, I, I, to, to, to live and have never seen a sunrise. To not understand what the word light even means. You can't Describe the beauty of creation. This man has never looked into the face of his mother. This is a man that's born blind. And verse eight will tell us that not only was he blind, but he was a beggar. Blindness and begging seemed to be constant companions because in that day, there were not any employment opportunities for the blind. Now today we, we have we, we have Braille and we have computers for the blind and we have ways that, that a blind man doesn't have to be a beggar. There are ways that that person can work and we thank God for that. But here is a man blind from his mother's womb and I think about in Acts 3, it talks about another man who was blind from his mother's womb, sitting by the gate of the temple and he's sitting there and he is hoping that religious folks will have a little pity on him and throw a few coins his way. Did you know that in that day that people looked down on people who were handicapped and disadvantaged as if they were getting what they deserved? Maybe he is being punished for something in a past life. We'll look at that in just a minute. So maybe this is being carried over for something he did previously. So why should I have pity on him if he is under the hand of divine discipline? And then other people would look at beggars as a nuisance and they would walk by them and kind of act like they, they didn't see them. Kind of like you know when you're at a red light and there's a panhandler and you look straight ahead deep in thought, or you pretend like you're on your phone, acting like you don't see the person, right? You, you know what I'm talking, about. oh, y'all you all church people, y'all don't do that, right? Yeah, yeah, you pious even in here is what you are. Huh? Well, that, that's what they would do. But the Bible says, as Jesus passed by, as Jesus passed by, coming out of the temple, coming out of the temple, beggars were known to sit at the gates of the temple, hoping that religious people would have a little bit more pity on them because religious people are good people. They're, they're compassionate people. The rabbis taught almsgiving and giving to the poor. That would be one of the ways that you could earn your salvation. Two, they're coming to the temple with a sacrifice as an atonement for their sin, so they already feel guilty a little bit, so maybe throw some coins my way that'll help relieve some of your guilt. And as I contemplated this man, I I tried my best to put myself in his shoes. I tried to imagine what it would be like to be blind. I even went to that great reservoir of information, Google. And I Googled, what is it like to be blind? And for all of that, I, I simply could not. You cannot imagine what it is to live in blindness If you've never been blind, I'm sure that there is a certain isolation to it because people feel awkward around somebody that that has an obvious handicap or they don't know what to say. They they don't know and and, and you can't play most games. You can't watch a movie together. How, How do you describe a color to a blind person? How do you do that? And how much harder if the person was born blind because there's no point of reference that that, that you can give them. They've never seen anything. So so here's a man born blind. But the story moves very quickly from his physical blindness to the Pharisees' spiritual blindness. Because in this story, here are men who have 20-20 vision and they cannot see what is plainly before them. Their eyes are open, but their hearts are blind to the truth. And I want to say to you that that though I cannot imagine what it is like to live in darkness all of my life, I want you to know that there is a blindness that is greater than physical blindness, and that's to not be able to see Jesus when he's standing before you. Though Jesus could see him, he could not see Jesus. Jesus is unknown to him and in his blindness he is a picture of every sinner that does not know Jesus Christ. And I want to say that whether you grew up in a Christian home or you grew up in a pagan home, whether you were sprinkled as as a child or baptized as an adult, whether you are somebody that's been to church all of your life or somebody that has never darkened the doors of a church, no matter what your background, no matter your religion, every single person in the history of this race has been born spiritually blind, spiritually blind. Second Corinthians says, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ should shine unto them. Ephesians 4 and verse 17 that she henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God to the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. They are alienated from the life of God because of the darkness and the ignorance that is in them. Now that's offensive to say that somebody is ignorant, but it has nothing to do with IQ. You could be a professor at the college with a PhD. You may be brilliant. You may have a high IQ. You may be a member of Mensa, but be spiritually ignorant. They are untaught by God because they live behind the veil of spiritual darkness. That's why Jesus said, that's why Jesus said that except a man be born again, ye cannot see. You cannot see the kingdom of God. You may be the only person in your family that is saved. The only person in your family that is genuinely converted and what a humbling thing to think that for some reason Jesus passed by your way passed by your way and gave you sight. Not because you're better, not because you're more moral, not because you're smarter, oh no, there is nothing about you, it is all the grace of God that you find yourself in a church this morning with eyes wide open and a heart open to the gospel and I can see him this morning, thank God for that. There is a problem greater than blindness. Now, let me say this. If you read any Calvinist commentaries, and I would not recommend it, but if you read any Calvinist commentaries, they find Calvinism on every page of the Bible. It doesn't matter if it's First Chronicles 4, there's Calvinism somewhere in that genealogy, all right? If you read a Calvinist commentary, they lean extremely heavy on the sovereignty of God in this passage. They point to the fact that this man does not ask for healing. They point to the fact that Jesus didn't promise healing. It's just an act performed by Jesus without any prompting. And of course, the blind man is totally dependent upon Christ to give him any sight. And you have heard me long enough, I hope, to know that there is not one-tenth of one percent of Calvinism in my body. However, however... Do not be afraid of the sovereignty of God in salvation. Just because the Calvinists preach that and preach sovereignty and they take it way out to left field. But here's what I would tell you. That before a man is saved, there must be a quickening of his understanding because he is dead in sins and he cannot see and he cannot believe and he cannot come. And a sinner must be given understanding before he can trust by faith what he understands. And that understanding is a gift of the sovereignty of God. I lost about half of you right there. So I'll say it like this, if God, doesn't turn the light on in your heart, you'll never trust Jesus Christ. If you cannot see Christ, if you don't understand your need, then you are blinded by sin, and that blindness is greater than any physical blindness. Thank God for the day that the Holy Ghost came my way. I feel like preaching for just a little bit. Thank God for the day that he came by my way. And opened my eyes so it wasn't just what I heard in Sunday school, but I understood it with my heart. Gave me the faith to trust Christ and be gloriously saved. There is a problem that is greater than blindness. But in this passage, there is a purpose that is greater than judgment. Look at verse number two. His disciples ask him, saying, Master, who did sin? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. The question is not, is his blindness because of sin? The question is, whose sin caused his blindness? These are the disciples talking. And in their limited theology, this blindness has come from either his sin or his parents' sin, but we are sure it is because somebody sinned. Their theology said that all suffering is because of sin. Yours or somebody else's. Now in one sense it is true that all suffering is the result of sin because we are the children of Adam and Adam fell and we are live in this fallen race. But that's not what they mean. What they mean is to make a direct connection between some sin in the past that would cause this man to be born blind. Not because we live in a cursed world, no, but some direct or indirect sin that somebody did, either him or his parents, that he is born with this disease. And by the way, they're not the first people to think that. Do you remember Job? Job's three friends who weren't very good friends, who came along to comfort him, but they ended up indicting him, They came knowing that there was a sin. We just got to find what sin God's punishing you for. That's their theology, that where there is suffering, there is sin. So Job, we know that you're suffering because of sin in your life. And if you were not so proud, you would confess it and get it right. And maybe God would give you some relief. And that may be true for some people who are away from God. God does send chastisement to his people, but that was not true of Job because the Bible said he was a perfect man. So it was a bad diagnosis and it was the wrong patient as well. So, so 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 who sinned? So, so let's look at it. Let, let's just consider the first option. Master, who did sin? This man. Now the obvious problem is he is born blind. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. That's just, that's just what it is. So, so he could not have been sin in this life. So was it a sin in a previous life? Did he sin somehow in the womb? Or do they believe in some type of reincarnation? Right. Yeah. Where, where you are living in this life according to how you live in a past life. Is there such a thing as prenatal iniquity? Is there any truth to reincarnation? And unless you believe, unless you believe some form of reincarnation where your soul lived in a past existence and now this life is just karma, this option does not work. It cannot be his sin. So consider the second option. Master who did sin, this man or his parents that he was born blind. And this is the school of generational curses. That sin is imputed from the parent to the child and the child suffers because of the parent's sin. And somebody right now in this auditorium is thinking, well, don't the Bible say that. Don't the Bible say about visiting the iniquity to the second and the third and the fourth. Well, take your Bible, quickly, quickly. Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. I found sometimes in preaching it is good to head off the objections here than in the foyer. So Exodus 20 and verse number five. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. So some people read that and say, all right, you, you, then, then children are cursed from their birth, that you have to pay the consequences of something that your parents did. But I I would just remind you, I would just remind you to give a little bit of clarity to this is to recognize that this is a collective statement. It is made to a generation of fathers and leaders, and, 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 and it is saying that you can live in this generation in such a way that the next generation has to pay for the consequences of how you live. It is not saying it is not saying that your son, that your son is going to have lung cancer because you smoked all of your life. It's not said that your son has to pay for the individual sins that you committed, and he is ordained to live a curse of life because he had a bad daddy. That's what it's was saying. Right. But it's saying, take care in your generation to live that you don't show sow the seeds of corruption that your children and grandchildren have to face that. Right. Now, if you're not convinced of that, go to Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel chapter 18. And, and I was reading this the other day and said, wow. I had never read it like this before. But look at Ezekiel 18 and verse number one. The word of the Lord came unto me again saying, what mean ye that ye use this proverb concerning the land of Israel saying, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. That was a proverb. That was a proverb, it was a common proverb and Ezekiel evidently was going around preaching, and he would use that proverb that basically says the children suffer the consequences of the behavior of their parents. We'll look at verse number three. As I live, saith the Lord God, you shall not have occasion anymore to use this proverb in Israel. Don't use that proverb no more. Quit saying that. That's what he said. All right? You ain't gonna have a reason, gonna have a reason to say that anymore. Well, look down verse 20. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. That is personal responsibility. Every man is responsible for his own actions. So, so it ought to put to rest the notion that this man is born blind because he's being punished for his. Parents sin. So if his blindness is not because of his sin, it's not because of his parents sin, then why was he born this way? And come back to John nine, Jesus is gonna give you the third option. John nine and verse three, Jesus answered, neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Now that's a tall drink of water right there. You might would have wanted to have the first two options. Jesus is saying this man is born blind so the glory of God can be displayed in his life. Come two pages over to John 11. This is Lazarus. This is Lazarus sick unto death and does die. At John 11, 4, when Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death. He will die and Jesus will resurrect him. But the purpose is not for him to die. This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Here's what Jesus said. He said, the Father has allowed Lazarus to get sick and die, so it would provide an opportunity for Christ to come and raise him from the dead, so that God could be glorified. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon had his message on this, on this right here, and he titled it, Lazarus is sick and I am glad. Lazarus is sick, and I am glad. God made him sick to provide a platform to perform a miracle that God might be glorified in it. Here is a man in John 9 that God chose to allow to be born blind and to live for a certain time that way so that Jesus could come by and heal him. There was a greater purpose in his life than just judgment for sin, he is, he is being set up for a miracle. <laughs> he is blind so that he can be a recipient of the grace of God that might then glorify God. By the way, this is a creative miracle. I don't have time to get into that, maybe next week, but he did not restore sight, he created sight. Amen. He never had sight before. He he created sight, he gave him brand new eyes and he did it so that he might be glorified. Now now here's the deal. Some folks read this and they are troubled by it. And if you're not careful, you will fall into questioning everything about God that you can't understand with your mind. But it is clear to me that God caused his blindness and the reason he is blind is because God saw fit to use his life as a platform to showcase his son so his son could get more glory through his blindness than if he never had been blind. If this man had been born with eyes, seeing, just like you and I, Jesus would have passed by that day and probably never spoke to him. This man most likely would have been one of the masses that would have never met Jesus Christ. This miracle would have never happened in his life. And here's a statement I want to make to you. It is more important that God work in my life and yours than that everything in my life be good. good. It is more important that Christ be exalted in my life than that my life be comfortable. If Christ can be exalted in my life more through sickness than health, and I'm not praying for sickness, but if he can be exalted in my life more through my suffering than my prosperity, then that is a greater purpose. God is more interested in the glorification of his son than the comfort of your life. And the question is, what am I most concerned about? We take care of ourselves and we should. We, we are concerned for our health and our well-being and we should be. There's nothing wrong with that. But may our concern be more for the glory of God, that my life be a platform for the power of Christ to be demonstrated to those around me. God allows suffering for a myriad of reasons. It could be for chastisement. It could be to purify us. It could be to make us a vessel of honor. And when you suffer, you can either get bitter at God or you can draw closer to God. And we can't always know the purpose of God, but I know him and I trust him to work all things out for the good. I I, I think about this blind man. Well, if he could have been born with sight, how wonderful that would be. Productive life. And you and I would have never heard of him. There'd been no miracle. Right. There'd been no work of grace. It'd probably just been one of the unbelieving masses who may have never believed in Jesus as Messiah, but Jesus passes by and performs a miracle in his life. And it's interesting that after verse 12, and we'll get into this next week, the passage is more about the testimony of this man than anything else. Right. The Pharisees come, they question him, they question his parents, they come back and question him, and you go back and look at it, but from verse 12 down to verse 25, three times this man tells what Jesus did for him. Three times. Three times he gives his testimony and says, I don't know who he was, all I know is I was blind and now I see. And then he tells it again. And then he tells it again. The nobleman Ichaparnium didn't get his testimony in the book. The, The the impotent man at Bethesda he didn't get his testimony in the book. The woman taken in adultery didn't get her testimony in the book, but here is a man that tells it over and over and over and over. And I think that if you and I will allow God to work in our life without growing bitter, without complaining what he puts in our life, that we'll see the grace of God in a greater measure than we would have ever been before. We're not praying for suffering, but we see the hand of God in it. So God, let my life be a canvas for you to paint your grace and your mercy and a portrait of Christ to the world. And if you receive more glory through my pain than my ease, then I know the true grace will strengthen me even Amen. when I am weak. There is a purpose greater than judgment. Hey, give me the third thought, and I'm going to eat lunch. There is a problem that's greater than blindness, and there is a purpose greater than judgment, and there is a power greater than healing. Think at verse six. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle. He anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. He said unto him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. He went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. What a strange way to heal a blind man. Especially with the Son of God, none of it was necessary. He could have simply said, Eyes be opened. it would have been done. He does not need a demonstration to do the miracle. As far as the text tells us, he does not speak to the man until he tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. He does not ask him, can you see? Do you want to see? He doesn't ask him anything. He spits on the ground, rubs it in the dust to make a clay or a mud like, and rubs that in the blind man's eyes. What a strange way. The a blind man. I would have never thought of that, to be honest with you. So what's going on here? I was interested to read that there was common folklore in the first century that said that saliva had healing powers. And some even went beyond to say that if you did not eat, if you were fasting, then your saliva could heal infections and the like. I think that's crazy. I don't think there's any truth to that at all. I think that's quackery. Another opinion is that Jesus spit on the ground so he could form it like he did at creation. Remember, he took the dust of the ground and formed man and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Well, here he is creating sight. He's not giving it back. He is creating sight. So he's pointing back to the creation as he did that, so he is doing that. I, I don't buy That saliva has healing powers. I I don't buy that. And there may be something to the creation connection, but I I think there is something here that is so simple that we will miss it. I think the reason why he took clay and put it in the man's eyes is so that the man would have to go and wash it off at the pool of Siloam. He gave this man something to do. And his obedience by faith would come become the means by which he would be healed. Right. I may say more about this next week because I'm running out of time. Go wash in the pool of Siloam. Why that pool? The pool of Siloam. I, I'll, get into, I'll try to get into what the Old Testament says about the pool of Siloam next week. But, but Siloam, in fact, he tells you in verse number seven, which is by interpretation sent. It's called Siloam, and the name of that pool simply means sent. So, the one who has been sent from heaven 41 times in the book of John, I mean, he that was sent. Sent from the Father. The Father sent me over and, over and over. He sent me, he sent me, sent me. 41 times Jesus says that I am the one that has been sent. So the one who has been sent sends him to the pool that is called sent. And he is painting a picture that you must go to the one who has been sent by God. Your only hope of healing is to go to him who has been sent. Not every miracle is a picture of salvation, but this is a miracle of salvation. But but here's the thing I I would point to you, then then I will be done. Some people rely on a perceived miracle in their life for their salvation. I have witnessed to people, their testimony has been, something happened. An angel on the bedpost. I, in a car wreck and God saved me. Some, in their mind, miracle, and it may have been a miracle. But some miracle, and then they equate that to soul's Salvation. I I go back to this extraterrestrial experience that I had, this vision that I had, and I know that God saved me and that's my testimony. That's very dangerous. This is a picture of salvation, but it is not salvation for him. If all that happens is what we have read, wonderful for the blind man, that gets to live the rest of his life with sight. But if this is all that happens to him, he dies and goes to hell. But there's a power greater than healing. I've got to skip a lot of verses. Go all the way to verse 35. All the way to verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he found him, he said unto him, dost thou believe on the Son of God. He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said to him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. And it was Jesus heard that the Pharisees had cast this man out of the synagogue. He makes a point to go back and he finds this man. And before this man was unsure of who it was that had even healed him of the blindness and now he makes this confession, Lord, I believe that saving faith that is a spiritual sight that is greater than physical sight. The greatest miracle in this story takes place not at the beginning. It takes place at the end of the story. Him seeing Jesus by faith is greater than him seeing Jesus in the flesh. It would have been a tragedy for him to have his eyes open physically but his heart not open spiritually to the truth of Jesus Christ you may truly experience a miracle god may do something for you and save you from certain death you might have a vision there might be something happening in your life that is not explained to other than some supernatural thing but the greatest work the greatest work that deliver doing your life is not some physical miracle that's when he saves your soul from hell. Right. I'm done. And I come to the piano where got. I'm, I'm done. It, it, it has impressed me that in John chapter 9, 41 verses, here is an entire story dedicated to the salvation of an unsaved man. I don't know his name, I don't know his mom and daddy's name, I don't know anything else about him. Nobody cares for him, and there's nobody to help him. But 41 verses dedicated to his testimony. Did you know there's only one chapter in your Bible, Revelation 21, that describes heaven? If you want to know what heaven looks like, the New Jerusalem, you go to Revelation 21, it's the only chapter that describes streets of gold, gates of pearl, only one chapter. There's more verses dedicated to the salvation of this man than there's a description of heaven. If you want to know how God created heaven and earth, you've got one chapter to find it, Genesis 1. Genesis 1 tells you about the six days of creation, that's all the details you're going to get. There are more verses telling about the salvation of this one man than there is telling about how God created heaven and earth. One chapter describes creation. One chapter describes heaven. And there's more verses to tell you what Jesus did for this man. And here's what it tells me. It tells me that Jesus Christ is interested in individuals. John 3. He spends time with one man. Nicodemus. John 4. One woman. Sitting at a well. The end of John 4. One man. Nobleman from Capernaum. John 5. One man. Lame man sitting at the pool of Bethesda. John 8, one woman caught in adultery. Jesus passed by one person. I'm grateful for the day, September the 27th, 1976. I don't know what else was going on in that world, but I know what was going on in that bedroom that night. Jesus passed by one person, one person. There might not be anybody else got saved that day, but I got saved. When he passed by my way. Do you remember that time? Do you remember the day, the night. When Jesus passed by your ways. Opened your eyes. And gave you spiritual sight. I say to you this morning. There is a problem greater than blindness. A problem greater than blindness. Is to not be able to see Jesus Christ. When he's standing in front of you. And there is a purpose greater than judgment. That he might take your life. And paint a portrait of the grace of God. Through pain, sorrow, comfort, whatever it might be. But if he could take your life and mine and show the world how great that he is. And I say to you, there is a power greater than healing. It doesn't matter what he does for you. It matter how many miracles that you can claim. But if you've never had this miracle, the miracle of new birth, I see you're missing out on the greatest miracle.